You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Dancing Man, a fabulous invalid podcast featuring exclusive behind-the-scenes interviews with the cast and creative team of Bob Fosse's Dancing on Broadway. I'm Jamie Dumont. I'm Rob Russo. And we're your hosts. You know, when we wrapped our first podcast after 100 episodes to pivoting to producing for the stage, we promised you we would be back with deep dives and exclusive interviews related to our future projects. And that time has come. (laughs) Yes, it has. We're so thrilled to share that our production company, also named The Fabulous Invalid, is co-producing Bob Fosse's Dancing on Broadway. And that we will be coming to you weekly from the Roseville Cocktail Room's Blue Room at Civilian with members of the cast and creative team to give you a 360 degree look at the work that goes into putting on a Broadway show. It's sort of like the mission of our original show, which, if you may recall, was to talk to the best, most important and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors and designers and everyone in between, but all through the lens of one show that I think it's fair to say we're pretty excited about. Yes, we are. And for anyone who doesn't know, Bob Fosse's Dancing is Fosse's full-throated, full-bodied celebration of the art form he loved and perfected, and then changed forever. Utterly reimagined for the 21st century by director Wayne Salento, who starred in the original 1978 Broadway production, this is the first ever revival of the show. And it starts performances tonight at the Music Box Theater following an out-of-town tryout at San Diego's Old Globe Theater last year. You know, as diehard Fosse fans, we couldn't pass up the opportunity to be a very small part in bringing this iconic show back to Broadway for the first time. And as diehard theater nerds, we also couldn't resist creating this podcast to document the event. So to kick us off, we could not think of a better first guest to join us in the Blue Room and to talk to about Bob Fosse's dancing than Nicole Fosse, who is the only child of Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. In addition to founding and serving as artistic director for the Verdon Fosse Legacy, which is dedicated to the preservation, promotion, and protection of her parents' intellectual and artistic properties, Nicole is also an accomplished actor, dancer, and producer. And as you'll hear, she's played an integral role in bringing dancing back to Broadway. We spoke to Nicole in February, just as the cast was wrapping up their time in the rehearsal room and preparing to move into the Music Box Theater for tech. So here is our conversation with Nicole Fosse. (laughs) 
So, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you with us today. And um, you have spent the last week in rehearsal at Danson. I'm curious what you're thinking and feeling right now about the show, and uh, what's it like being back in the room? I love being back in the room. I live a very different life right now. I live on a small farm in northern New England. Mm. And coming back into the room is very nostalgic for me and very exciting for me and sometimes a little bit overwhelming, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) I can imagine. Yes, of course. Well, you were a teenager in 1977, 1978, when your father was creating Danson the first time. Um, I'm wondering, taking a step back, what you remember from that time and the experience of being around when he was creating the show? Well, my, my personal experience with it was every single dancer on that stage was who I wanted to grow up to be like. Mm. I wanted to dance like each one of them, whether they, it was the men or the women, it, it didn't matter to me. They were all so extraordinary. It was the most extraordinary collection of dancers, I believe, ever put together on a Broadway stage. And that's not to diminish other dance shows, but these dancers came from the classical world, the concert world, as well as the Broadway world. And they all were so incredibly unique. And each one a star in their own right. In fact, he put everybody on principal contracts. Nobody was on an ensemble contract, which sort of blew the minds at equity. (laughs) But um, the union, they were like, what? And the producers and everybody. But he wanted them to know and feel their value Mm. um, and, and to dance like that. Yeah. That they were never just in the back backing somebody else up. They yeah. all had feature moments and they were all extraordinary. Mm. I read that as it was being developed, the original working title of the show was Dancers, not Dancing. I don't know if, if that is true, but I read it and I thought, oh, that's really sweet. And that really tracks with what you're saying about how your father really you know, saw these people as individuals, how they were the best and how it was about celebrating their unique talent. I've never heard that oh, okay. before, yeah. so, maybe so it's I don't apocryphal. know. I don't. Say. I don't yeah. know where that came from. Yeah. I mean, it could be possible. Yeah. I don't know everything. Yeah. <laughs> I know almost everything, but not everything. That's so funny. <laughs> so, as he was developing the show, were you in rehearsals, or did you would you talk to him about it? What was your like relationship like to the show as it was being created originally? Well, prior to the actual creation in the rehearsal studios, Mm -hmm. he danced around the living room a lot. (laughs) So that I got to be part of. And probably everyone knows this story by now, but I'll tell it again. (laughs) I was living with him. I was about 13 years old and I spent a year living with him. A little mother-daughter tension. So I moved in with my dad. And he asked me one day to dance. It was one evening actually after dark to dance behind him. He had sliding glass doors in his living room that led out to this tiny little balcony. So in the dark, you could see your reflection in the sliding glass doors. It was very foggy. It was diffused, but you could see a little bit like a mirror, but not as clear. And he asked me to do the ballet version of what he was doing behind him. So he could look in the mirror in the sliding glass doors and see the reflection of both of us. And I was standing behind him. He would do his moves, whether it was a you know a, a, a bell kick, and I would do an assemblé or a cabriole, and that's what became Bojangles. So there's the the man and his spirit, and that was the beginning of Bojangles. So that started when I was 13 years old. 
I'm giving away my total age here. So <laughs> no that, one do the math. No one do the nobody math. Nobody do the math. So that was 1976. I was 13. And Danson opened in 78. Right. So his ideas began way before they ever went into a studio. And then he did go into a studio with, I think it was six dancers. There was a skeleton crew mm-hmm. of six dancers who learned everything. And then the rest of the dancers came in and he had everybody learn everything. He had not yet decided who was going to dance what. Mm. So I imagine that created a sense of competition in the room, perhaps healthy competition, as long as everyone did know that everyone would get a spot, everyone would get a moment that was theirs, but which moment wasn't predetermined. Wow, that's interesting. I wonder, in addition to the healthy competition, if it also brought them together as a unit in in a sense, because they were all learning everything simultaneously. I'm sure it did. And also he had a dream of working with a classical dance company or a concert dance company. And he never quite found the right situation, the venue. So I think one of his One of the things he was trying to do in those rehearsal rooms was to create a real company feeling, which is everybody here is a soloist. Mm. Everybody can do trumpet solo. Everybody can do uh, piano solo. And so having everybody learn it, he also knew he had lots of covers because it was a very hard show and it was better for dancers to take a little, you know, bit of time off, you know, a show or two off prior to an injury or an illness Mm. than to try to push through and then end up missing a lot of performances. So he was very aware of how difficult the show is. It's a really difficult dance show, really difficult on the body. Yeah. I mean, it it seems like it's, these dancers are asked to do something that no other dancers really ever are, which is to do a two hour dance show eight times a week indefinitely, you know, for as long as the show will run, which most dance companies, you know, they'll do a week on, a week off, or right, they'll have a, a repertory schedule where they're rotating dancers. But this is a unique beast as a as a show. Ab- absolutely unique in the in the concert dance world mm-hmm. or in the sports world yeah, for right. you sports fans out there. Dancers are athletes. Right? Yeah. I mean, how many games does the same pitcher pitch in right. a row? How, you know, the Sugar Plum Fairy, it changes, <laughs> right? Right. Somebody's got the matinee, somebody else has the evening show, exactly. somebody's on this week, somebody else is on that week. But with the union equity, you can't do that right. on purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but he also needed to find a way to preserve the dancers. So right. I believe he knew that ensuring everybody knew all of the dances that he had backup. Mm. built in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting thing about the timing of the show historically, right? So it's 1977 into 78 is when he's developing it and when it comes to Broadway. And one can't help but, you know, take a look and see that in 1975, A Chorus Line had, you know, its huge success. And uh, I've read that your father had remarked that for all the success of A Chorus Line and, you know, how it was thought of as a dance show on stage that there wasn't actually that much dancing in a chorus line, right? There's that amazing opening. There's the fabulous finale. There's the montage. But in between it are huge book scenes, right? Do you think, whether consciously or subconsciously, that dancing was sort of your father's answer to a chorus line and saying, well, 
that's dancing, sure, in a chorus line, but I'm going to give you dancing. <laughs> I don't know if it was so much his, his response or, uh, yeah, response to a chorus <laughs> line as it was his exploration of could he hang in there with the big guys, mm. meaning Jerry Robbins, Balanchine, mm. Ailey, and create an entire evening of dance. And he had access to Broadway. He didn't have access to a full dance company and a rep that would change. That takes years to develop. And so I don't know that it was so much about a chorus line or Michael Bennett as it was just Bob Fosse saying, I can do what Jerry Robbins and Balanchine and Alvin Ailey Mm -hmm. and Paul Taylor and all these these greats (laughs) do. I can do it too. And my venue is Broadway. This is what I know. These are the people I know. And I'm going to do it on Broadway. My way. My way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. How perfect. <laughs> About 25 years ago, you and your mother and Anne Ranking and Chet Walker and many others worked on Fosse. And I'm curious, how is that different or the same of working on Danson today? How do the two compare? How has that experience been? Danson is completely different than Fosse. Uh, Fosse was sort of like a greatest hits album. Mm. And in my opinion, one of the most difficult parts of mounting Fosse was when you put all the greatest hits together, one number is just trying to outdo another number. Mm. How do you, when you take the crescendo from everything he ever did and put one right after the other, where are the quiet moments? Mm. Where's the the buildup? Where's the climax? Where's the arc of the show? But Danson, he constructed the arc of the show. He created the quiet moments. I think of Danson as a magic carpet ride. There is no plot, but there is a feeling of a through line that you're invited to join into this world. You buy into the world, you step onto the magic carpet, and you give in, and you're taken on a journey through basically, in my opinion, through the human condition. There's joy, there's pathos, there's love, there's lost love, there's cynicism, there's hope, there's all the, there's patriotism, there's all the feelings, all the feelings, all the situations. And you ride this magic carpet through, through the show. Fosse was very different that way. It was more like, um, concert, a concert of dances Mm. that, um, were strung together with some segues, um, to lead you in, to create some of the more quiet moments. Um, to me, the, the two shows are vastly different. And I also have to point out that in Fosse, because there were so many dance numbers in it and so many big hits, quote unquote, air quotes right now. Okay. (laughs) Podcast air quotes, right? Um, that, there were 35, I think 35 dancers in it. Oh, wow. So you couldn't follow. It was very difficult to follow a dancer mm. through and see their journey within the show. In dancing, you can follow every single person. You see them again. Oh, my God, she sings. He <laughs> tap dances. Wow, he does aerial cartwheels. <laughs> and he sings. You know, you learn who these people are and you mm. watch them take their 
journey in the dance world, we call it your track, right? You're in your track, but to an audience, it's, it's a journey. And each dancer, actor, singer has their journey through the show. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. You, you, you talked a little bit about sort of the dynamic of how you structure a show, whether it's Fosse or dancing. Something I've always thought that was so interesting is that in the original dancing, you know, it's three act structure and it almost feels like he's, your father started each act with the finale Crunchy granola sweet. I want to be a dancing man and sing, 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 which you would think of as like the finales. And yet he started each act that way. Do you have any insight into why he did that? Was he just trying to trick people or? Right. Well, they weren't really <laughs> finales. They, it was an invitation to join. So crunchy mm. granola is the, he always started a show with an invitation. So crunchy mm. granola prologue into crunchy is an invitation to the audience to come into the world of the dancers, to buy in, Mm. right? You get comfortable in your seat. You start leaning forward. Like, what are they doing? They're having so much fun. I'm enjoying myself. This music is great. (laughs) And now I'm, they bought in to the experience, right? Then after an intermission, you have to get them to buy in again, Mm. right? And the reason you start the third act with Sing, Sing, Sing is because word of mouth, people say, you can't walk out after two acts. You have to go for the third act. You don't want to miss Sing, 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 no, right? That, that's a showman right? who knows how, oh, yeah, to, how yeah, to structure no, something. Yes, yes. I mean, if you look at the patterns he made on stage yeah. also, I mean, he was it, everything he did beyond style and nuance and cynicism and sensuality, beyond all of that... He could craft a dance and craft the arc of a show in a very engaging way. In a, in a way that people might not expect, right? In a way that might shock them or surprise them or, you know, without them even realizing that invitation is happening, right? Yes. It operates on so many levels. Yeah, because yeah. if you don't get people to buy into the show, you don't have an audience and then you can't pay your rent. As <laughs> <laughs> simple it, as that. And it's also humorous, right? With yeah. all the other words that you mentioned, yeah. the sensual and, and all of those, there's such great humor to so much of the show. And I think that's something that people don't often find in dance, right? They They don't expect that, it's going to be funny and that it's going to have moments that just make you broadly smile. There's so many moments in, <laughs> in dancing that will bring a smile to your face. And sometimes it's just in a rhythm mm. and I don't want to give anything away. Yeah, please yeah. don't. I won't give anything <laughs> away, but there are some moments where he breaks up a rhythm and it's so unexpected that you giggle, mm. you know, I don't know how else to explain it, yeah, yeah. but <laughs> well, you've spent many, many years now leading the uh, Verdon Fosse legacy, the Fosse Verdon legacy. Am I got the order right? Verdon Fosse. Verdon Fosse. Verdon Fosse legacy. The there you go. Sh- the FX show is Fosse exactly. The legacy is Verdon Fosse. There you go. I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners a little bit about what that is, if they don't know. Oh, I know. would love to yeah, share what yeah. that is. And, um, and, and sort of, you know, why it's important to you to, to be doing this work. Right. So the Verdon Fosse legacy began over a decade Uh, ago of reconstructing dances because I Mm -hmm. felt like they were being lost. Mm. And I was also very aware of people learning things from YouTube and then thinking they knew how to quote unquote, air quotes again, do Fosse. And that's not the same as learning it Mm. in the room. I discovered it really takes a village to learn it. What I mean by that is learning a number from several different teachers, right? So 
each teacher who was a performer has their own personal experience and they're teaching from their own personal experience. So sometimes things shift because it's their experience with it. And then you study the same dance from another teacher, their experience is slightly different in that dance, how they felt it in their body, the mm. words they used to convey it. And there's a shift in that. So when you study the same dance from five different teachers, you ultimately are gathering all of the information so that you as a performer, as a dancer can blossom and grow from the same seed, you mm. know, the seeds of information, basically. We started doing workshops, inviting dancers to come and take and exploring the reconstruction of, of the material. I experimented with a lot of different ways of putting it out there in the world and teaching it what we've landed on, which is uh, really, really working is we have a professional training program in New York City in the summertime. We have several different programs that build upon each other. And there's a lot of foundational material being taught. What I discovered was you can't just learn Fosse steps. Mm. You need to understand the foundation behind it. So I looked at what did my parents bring with them? What was, were their experiences? What was their early training? And then they met each other and this magic explosion <laughs> happened, right? But my mother came from learning flamenco and East Indian and Afro-Caribbean. And my father, it was rhythm and a lot of acting classes. So that's our foundation. We take these students through those classes, they study flamenco, East Indian, Afro-Caribbean, wow. they take modern, they take ballet, they do acting classes, and we build upon it, it with our programs. And we now have professional dancers coming and taking our program because it's such an incredible experience of immersion. So all those foundations happen in the morning and then in the afternoon, depending upon which program you, you've matriculated into... <laughs> You learn Fosse choreography from mostly people that worked with Bob Fosse and or Gwen Verdon, and we are developing the next generation. We have protégés, we have new teachers coming in from dancing, because the work will die if we don't continue to develop the next generation of those that, that can teach it. And we've learned we've learned this um, in talking to other people that there isn't usually with a particular director or choreographer there isn't one book where everything's written down right so you're piecing these things together over time are you putting together some sort of master syllabus of everything or is it more fluid than that you mean a master syllabus for the professional training program correct. It's developing as we go along. It's developing a few things we have discovered along the way work better than other other ways of approaching the material. Um, so right now we're approaching, we do teach a Fosse jazz class mm. and we're approaching it now that we have one teacher instead of many teachers who teach Fosse jazz. We have one teacher who knows what's 
uh, material will be taught in the afternoon and they incorporate it into the class, but they're teaching the basic vocabulary. And then we have the teachers that come in and teach the actual choreography, but they don't have to warm up the students as well. So we're focusing those teachers' talents very in a very concentrated way on teach the choreography. We'll prepare them. We'll get them warmed up. We'll mm. teach them how to roll their hip without, <laughs> you know, popping their knee at the same yeah. time. And now you teach the choreography. Yeah, so yeah. that was one discovery that we made. Um, and so a syllabus is is coming along. It's happening. I just spoke with some of the musicians for dancing about coming in and teaching our rhythm instead mm. of having dancers teach our rhythm sections, having the drummer teach a rhythm section and let the students work on paradiddles and all of that and rhythms from the show completely from the musical perspective. Mm -hmm. My father always said, you either have to tap dance or play the drums. <laughs> so... That's, That's amazing. Great. Yeah. I love that. Well, it, what, what's so striking about what you've just described and what we've heard from other, you know, dancers um, who we've talked to about the style is how it, you, you can't just do the steps, right? You, you, can, you can do the steps, but then you're not really doing the style, right? That there's a whole other element that lives in the bodies and the lived experience and the stories and the, you know, the, the performance of it that has to be, you know, elicited and taught and shared and experienced. Um, and what that really, to me, gets to is something you've talked about before, which is how, for all of his uh, accomplishments, something that people might overlook is the fact that your father was also just a really good director and a really good acting coach and someone who really knew how to get a performance out of someone. And I'm wondering if, if you could whittle all that down to say that like the secret of the Fosse style is the acting of it. Absolutely. Um, the, the secret... It's the acting of it. Absolutely. You need all of it. You mm. need to be technical. You need to be able to access your emotions. You need to be able to be subtle. You need to be able to be complicated. You need to be able to be simple. You're a musician. <laughs> you're an athlete. You're, you know, I Many remember hats. somebody <laughs> said to my mother once, actually it was a casting agent. She was much older and she was entering the whole film and television industry and a casting agent front desk person who did not really know who she was said, Oh, Miss Verdon, I see, um, you were a dancer on Broadway. <laughs> and her response was after he, he, she finally elicited from him, oh, well, and a singer. <laughs> and she said, well, I seem to remember doing something else besides changing my clothes, right? <laughs> Meaning acting, right? Right, right? And she was famous for saying, um, at some point, I don't give, can I curse on here? Of course, please okay. do. So at some point, she said, at some point, I don't, I don't give a rat's ass about if I start on my right foot or my left foot, I need to know what I'm doing. Mm. Mm. <laughs> because everything she did was from an acting perspective. Right. Yes, there's counts and you have to get your knee to your hand and your arm up in the air and sure. all of that. But there's a point of view, a perspective about it. So there's times a step, you'll see it in Crunchy Granola where they um, 
flick their hand at their foot as their leg flicks out to the side. And she'd always say, you're brushing the the gold dust off your shoes, <laughs> right? That you have to have a story going on with everything, yeah. a character, a story. Mm. Yeah. So it's the acting of it. <laughs> it's, the, it's the acting of it. Yes, it is. I and that. I mean, you know, we all know that he won the Triple Crown, the mm. Oscar, the Emmy, the Tony, all in the same year. Mm. That was as director. Right. There right. were also Oscars and Tonys and Emmys as as choreographer, but yeah. that Triple Crown, each one of those awards was as director. He won Best Director of Cabaret, Best Director of Pippin, and Best Director of Liza with a Z. Well, that says it all right there. Yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. What, I'm curious, what do you think your father would think of this production of Dancing? I think he would be thrilled. Absolutely <laughs> thrilled. This group of dancers is the most extraordinary group of dancers. And I know I said that about the original cast, and they're both, <laughs> both true. true. It's yes. both, both true, can be right? True. Who else could dance it but a, a, a cast of extraordinary dancers? Ext- extraordinary human beings. Mm. And they're all so joyous and enthusiastic, and they all come from different worlds once again. Yeah. There's dancers in there. It seems like their background is a lot of like hip hop, you know, and they go to the gym <laughs> and then others go to ballet class and put on point shoes, right. you know, and I mean, it's just everybody's so different and they come together and they dance together and it is exhilarating powerful, moving, and joyous. Well, I'm wondering, you know, being in the room and working on the show again, I imagine it's brought back a lot of memories and, you know, uh, how could it not, right? Um, And of course, your father is one of the greatest theater makers of the 20th century, your mother as well. Um, But they were also your parents, right? So (laughs) you have this very unique vantage point when you encounter the work that it's not, it's, it's, you know, it's almost like a, like an heirloom being passed down, right? You know, you have this relationship to it that is very unique. I'm wondering what's something, now that you have a microphone in front of you, you can, you can speak on it, that people might not understand or might not get about, we could start with your father, you know, I think there's obviously been a lot written, there's been movies, TV shows. What's something that as his daughter, you feel like people don't really understand or, or mis, misunderstand? I I think he truly would doubt himself sometimes, his ability to craft an entire show, mm. his ability to create a dance that was intriguing. And he truly always wanted to do better than the last time. And he never wanted to repeat anything. If he had done it one way before, he would never go back to some formula that he Mm. used before. You know, there's a great interview on YouTube where he talks about Big Deal. And he talks about the, the cost of Broadway, what it costs to mount a show, and the pressure it puts on creative people to create a hit. Mm. And he said that that's very dangerous when the pressure is to create a mega hit because the creatives then become afraid to take chances. And I think what he always was measuring was you need to take a chance to break the mold and do something new and 
if you're a flop, nobody's going to believe in you and you won't get another chance to go out there and try again in another situation. Mm. And that's, that's a tightrope. Yeah. That's a tightrope to oh, walk. Yeah. And dancing was a big chance, right? That was a big leap for him. It was, and it was hugely successful. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly was. <laughs> Which is why we have it today on exactly. Broadway. That's right. Um, you mentioned Big Deal, and I'm just curious, one of the one of the moments in the current dancing uh, that wasn't in the original, obviously, is the Big Deal section. So can you talk a little bit about why the desire to put that in into dancing now and what that feels like seeing it again? And As you know, Wayne Salento was in Big Deal. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of conversations about how brilliant a lot of that material is and how when material is not built into a show, Mm. it gets lost, right? If big deals never produced again, will we never see Beat Me Daddy 8 to the Bar? Will Mm. we never see the the jail soft shoe? Mm -hmm. And what a shame that is. And so Wayne started playing around with the idea of using a section of Big Deal or creating a section, merging some pieces um, to create a small Big Deal section to honor it. Um, I think it's terrific. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because a lot of people, you know, the the Tony Awards exist, so you can see a snippet of it, but, you know, it's... Mm -hmm. it's interesting to hear you say that it, it, it could almost be a lost thing if it isn't preserved. So there's a nice historical aspect mm. to that in addition to the, just the history of being able to see dancing again. Yeah. It's also one of his greatest numbers is Beat Me Daddy Ate oh, to yeah. the Bar. Yeah. <laughs> is every dancer in there is a percussion instrument. Mm. Well, then I'm going to ask you this. Do you have a favorite moment in the show? I, I I can't have. Does a it change? I can't have a favorite moment. I I I love so much of it, all yeah. of it. Coming back so many years later and and seeing it in San Diego and being in the rehearsal room now and seeing it put put up. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest surprise that you found? Okay, so I was very quite young when it first yeah. came out, and I'm almost sixty now. The patriotic section mm. really gets me now. Yeah. yeah. Did you, it, when you saw it when you were a teenager, did it sort of not make sense to you or, or was it, is it, is it just the world we live in now that it just, it, it really hits home? I think it's both of what you just said. I think it's the world that we live in now. And it's, it was, it was my youth back then that I wasn't really connected on an emotional level to the deep implications mm. of that. I could intellectually understand what the material that was being presented or the attitude of the material, but I didn't have an emotional connection to it. And now at almost 60 years old, I understand in a very different way um, the feeling of a sense of patriotism, even when things are going terribly wrong. Mm. It's complicated. It's very complicated. complicated. And when you see those dancers turn around all together Mm. and start to sing together, I brought tears to my eyes. Yeah. It's giving me chills now, just thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was authentic to your father, right? I mean, he had a real 
patriotism to it, right? I mean, th- from born from the experience of World War II and his upbringing and all that, right? When he was 17, he enlisted. He lied yeah. about his age and enlisted. And after boot camp or what, I don't know what they call it. It was the <laughs> Navy boot camp. His dance teacher told his sergeant, I guess it's not a sergeant in the Navy, <laughs> his his officer, um, you can't actually let him do anything combat combative because he's a really talented dancer. You have to protect him. You have to protect his legs. Do not let him get hurt. Wow. So they put him on uh, kitchen duty and he peeled potatoes <laughs> and entertainment duty. And he entertained the troops in the hospitals. Mm. And I think that was very disturbing to him when you think about troops in yeah. hospitals during World War II, what's happened to them. Oh, yeah. Um, physically as well as emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, right? And he's doing a shuffle ball change. (laughs) And yet still, he believed in America. He, even though he could be cynical about it, he believed in America. He believed in government, although he could be cynical about (laughs) it. He believed in the union he was very active in the very early years of the SDC, mm-hmm. and he really believed in those constructs. Yeah. Uh, as disturbing as they can sometimes be. And wasn't afraid to tackle that complicated nature of it, right? Correct. With With this piece, yes. which I'm excited for audiences to see. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, it's part of the show that will mm-hmm. surprise people um, mm-hmm. in a good way. You know, yes. <laughs> in a very good way. Well, yeah. and I think it, it will be very moving, unexpectedly <laughs> moving. Yeah. It catches, it caught me off guard, even though I knew it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good theater, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. There's a story I read, another one, so who can say what's true and what's not, but that um, on the opening night of Danson, in, originally, he gathered the cast on stage and the question was posed, you know, what do you wish this show will do for you? And after a very long pause, he said, give me more hair, <laughs> which is a great story. And I hope it's true because, you know, it captures the humor that people might not know about your father. Right. Um, so we want to pose that same question to you. Um, what What is your wish for this production? Well, first, I have no idea if that story is true. <laughs> you need to ask Wayne because yeah, he was there. Okay. We will, we will, <laughs> okay. <we will. laughs> I think to reignite the the truth in his legacy mm. what he did for the dance and the theater world not just the theater world but the dance world you know over the years over the decades fossey has been wedged the style air quotes again <laughs> the style of fossey is being wedged into a certain look and he that was not his only look mm. And so I feel like this really keeps what he had to contribute. It keeps it alive and fresh and here and now in our pop culture. What I'm visualizing as you answer that question was all the varied styles that you can see in dancing, right? It's all on the stage. So hopefully audiences will walk away understanding much greater, to your point, what your father could do and, and, and how varied his style was. The humor in, in his work and the intelligence in his work. And I think that that's going to be so exciting for people to see. So It's also uh, very colorful. Yeah. 
which I think is part of what you're speaking to, right? There's there's an idea of your father all in, in all black and that his dancers were in all black. And that's true in some cases when the story called for it, right? But this is this is such a vibrant production. I, I, I agree. And um, the show Fosse was done in black and that's gold. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, the show Chicago, because it was it started at Encores right. as as a concert piece. Yeah, they just all wore all black, and then they didn't go much farther than that with the <laughs> costumes for the show. Yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting look, but that it has formed a lot of people's opinion right. well, exactly. about yeah. what Fosse is. And in 78, there were some pom-poms flying and colors and things. I didn't like the pom-poms, but I loved Willa Kim. And, yeah. and this is fabulous with colors and, and textures. And it's, it's fun. It's yeah. really fun. What we're taking away from all this is just the sheer variety that Danson contains, um, which is just, you know, so exciting and so thrilling. And we can't, uh, you know, do this conversation without thanking you for the incredible work that you've done in keeping the legacy alive and ensuring that this isn't lost or forgotten and that it's also appreciated in its full diversity, right? That it's not just one thing, that it is all these things, just like your parents were. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think, you know, when people see the show, I think they'll go back and they'll see it several times because it's so rich and so full and so entertaining. And I think Mm. that that's really what we need now in our lives is, is to be entertained <laughs> and to go out of the theater singing lots of different tunes and mm-hmm. and to clap and yeah, to wiggle in feet. our seats. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and have a good time. Yes. And to feel patriotic, but also challenge that, <laughs> yeah. that those thoughts a little bit. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's all in there. But even throughout the patriotic section, there is so much joy. Right. So much joy. So and, much hu- joy. and humor and fun. and <laughs> All yeah. of that. Yes. And yes. you can all also go back multiple times and follow different dancers yes. and their journey exactly. through the show, yes. to your point earlier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Buy tickets in a bundle. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the group sale number is. Well, right. <laughs> thank you so much for, for well, spending the afternoon with us. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. A dancing man. A dancing man, a dancing man with footsteps on the sands. Bob Fosse's Dancing is now on Broadway at the Music Box Theater. For tickets and more information, visit dancingbway.com. Dancing Man, a Fabulous Invalid podcast, is a production of OM, etc., and the Fabulous Invalid LLC, and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Special thanks to Civilian for hosting us, and to our audio engineer, Kyle Moore. If you liked this episode, we've got over 100 episodes of the Fabulous Invalid podcast that you can check out, including a two-parter on the life, work, and legacy of Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org, because only together we rise.